Welcome back to 10 and 20, the official podcast of the Battle of Franklin Trust. I'm Sarah. And I'm Brad. This is part three of our three-part series on General John Bell Hood. Uh, Definitely encourage you to listen to the first two parts before you listen to this. But we are interviewing our boss, uh, Eric Jacobson. So thank you for listening. And here's our interview with Eric. Sarah and I are here this morning with uh, our boss, historian, author, and CEO of the Battle of Franklin Trust, Eric Jacobson. Good morning, Eric. Hey, guys. Hello. So you're somebody who has dealt with Hood's legacy for a long time via writing and telling the story of this battle. If you could just talk to us a little bit about how how his legacy changed over the years. Like when you jumped into, when did you start writing or researching the Battle of Franklin story? I guess it was probably in the mid-90s. Mid-90s, and at that point, what was the public perception of who General Hood was? Well, if you were in Tennessee or you were reading about what he did in Tennessee, he was uh, really the ultimate villain, which I thought was odd because it really conflicted with the the idea or the, the, the um, opinions about Hood based on his career in the Eastern Theater when he fought in um, Robert E. Lee's army. So what what changed, though? Because I feel like in the research that we've done, by the end of his life, he seems to maybe have uh, built up a couple rivalries, but in general, the public perception of him was pretty high. I, I think it was. When Hood, <clears throat> when Hood died in 1879, he was a bona fide uh, Confederate hero. And um, he certainly had... Um, had a conflict with Joseph Johnston in writing, um, and that conflict really goes back to the war. But I mean, he was he was a bona fide hero, and and that and that image um, continues for at least a few decades. But then, as with a number of characters, Hood's story kind of faded. Franklin's battlefield was lost. You know, anything Hood did in the East was largely overshadowed by Lee and Jackson and Stewart and Longstreet and other characters. So Hood just became kind of a, a player in that story. Um, and, and I would argue that it was after World War II and in leading into the centennial of the Civil War that Hood's image in the public eye changed dramatically. And, and it was really, I would say, strangely organic. He just became the guy to blame for everything. He was to blame for Spring Hill. He was to blame for Franklin. He was to blame for Nashville. Then he became, you know an idiot. He was, you know, he, he didn't know what he was doing, you know, he, and then it turned in, then he was on drugs because, you know, he had to be, as some people said, had to be in this just terrible pain because of the injuries um, that he had suffered. And in many ways, it almost became fiction. I mean, there was any facts about it were really almost cast aside and Hood was portrayed in a way that was that was really almost fictional if not just outrageously cartoonish um i remember years ago seeing john bell hood's portrait in the bathroom at the carter house and i was just a visitor then and i remember thinking this is just wrong like it's not even funny this is a historic character in a major civil war battle and so that's kind of a long answer but i think it 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 evolved over many decades. Let's talk about the drug thing for a second, yeah. because in the episodes that just Sarah and I have done so far, we haven't gotten into any of the myths we just talked about. Injured twice, recovers fairly rapidly, 
Um, by the summer of 1864, he's riding 15, 20 miles a day with the Army of Tennessee. Where did these rumors of drugs, of drug use, because those seem to be the most damning rumors about Hood. Where did those pop up? I think they came right out of Middle Tennessee. In fact, I could almost prove it. It came largely out of Murray County because it, it started with Spring Hill. And Spring Hill was such a mystery. And by extension, you know, Franklin gets lumped into that. Um, what I always found interesting is nobody accused Hood of being on drugs at Atlanta, which is further evidence that it really all sprung out of Middle Tennessee. And there were some early writings in the early 20th century in, in the Columbia Daily Herald that kind of hinted at something nefarious going on. But it wasn't until the 1940s, ironically, in a book written by about another Confederate general who also suffered an amputation that the accusation was first lodged that Hood may have been on um, opiates, laudanum, and then it just took off from there. When I say organic, I mean, once that seed was planted, that was the excuse. Um, so these mistakes were made, and so it couldn't be just that he was, you know, he was a fool and wasn't very smart, which isn't true. But then he had to be on drugs because, again, he had lost his right leg, so he had to be in this terrible agony. Again, there's no evidence of it. But, you know, if you say something enough, it becomes true. And people still believe it. Absolutely. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read a couple of comments in just a moment. But before we get there, it has come to light that not only was there not evidence for it, there was evidence to the contrary. So what, what has been revealed over the years that has started to change... Well, actually, that's a great question. Actually, I, I, took this, I took this perspective. When I wrote my book, there's a line I used, which I, I, I termed them, and these were the accusers, an anti-hood cabal. Because what they were doing was they were casting an accusation without any evidence. And they were putting the burden of proof on a dead man. And he couldn't prove that he didn't do it. So I guess it was me and maybe a couple of other people like Sam Hood and uh, even Steve Davis uh, way back a long time ago who thought, actually, we're going to try and prove that there's no evidence. And so what we were doing was trying to disprove a negative. And as I've said many times, I chased this for a decade and there's just not a shred of evidence. I mean, just absolutely nothing. So we have worked over time to try and get people to understand that um, just because something is said doesn't mean it's true. If there's no evidence from a scholarly standpoint, I'm of the opinion that those kinds of things should not be repeated because they're, they're, they're damning actually to what the truth is. Can you talk for a moment about the medical records that were found? Uh, well, uh, before the medical records were found by Sam Hood, I guess, oh gosh, four or five years ago, um, I had a conversation with a fellow named Jack Welsh, who was a, um, an MD who had written two great books, Medical Histories of Union and Confederate Generals. And I remember asking Jack one time what he thought of the laudanum story with Hood, and Jack said, it's bunk. And I said, well, why do you think that other than the lack of evidence? He said, as a doctor, I can tell you that not everyone is the same. Everyone recovers differently. Everyone has a higher threshold of pain. And he said, more importantly, not everyone who suffers an amputation has phantom limb pain. And he said, so Hood may have just been incredibly tough. Um, he said, you know, did it, was it irritating? Did it hurt during the healing process? He said, undoubtedly. But long term, 
Um, he said injuries like that tended to plague people in obvious ways. He said there's nothing about Hood, especially post-war, that gives you any indication he has any problem other than he's missing his right leg. And Jack said, I'm convinced there was, there was absolutely no um, drug abuse. And then, of course, when the papers were found, my first thought was, oh, God, here we go. They're gonna, we're going to find, like, the laudanum bottle in, <laughs> in the, you know, chest of goodies. Or there was some evidence, and actually it just reinforced our position. And more than anything, what it showed was that the, the doctor who cared for him, whose last name, I believe, was Darby, yeah. took really detailed, he had re really detailed records of Hood's recovery process after the leg amputation and for about eight weeks he was watching him carefully he was administering morphine and he was only giving it to hood in small doses at night and why at night because that's when our that's when we rest we sleep and our bodies recover better during that time than any other time he never gave it to him during the day and actually when hood was well enough to be moved to richmond that was about it because they knew that morphine was addictive. Um, and contrary to popular belief, th this idea that opiates like laudanum, although they may have been widely available, that doesn't mean people used it a lot. Uh, I, I would argue that the same, the same people who drink too much are the same kinds who'd be, who'd be grabbing laudanum. I mean, it was available, but there's a difference between usage and abuse. And like Sarah alluded to earlier, there's, this is still this is still like the common perception even with books by Sam Hood who writes under his full name Stephen Hood uh, books that you've written people's opinion of, of Hood still seems to be of this uh, drug addict who threw his arm like dashed the army against the rocks even though he had no reason to we with the per with the first episode of this podcast I, I posted on our Facebook pages about it and the reception was just explosive I mean people were were firing off about all these allegations about who Hood was. So I just, I pulled a few of the comments that I thought... Oh, good. These ought to be fine. Yeah. I'm not going to read any names, but, I mean, they, they posted the comments in an open forum. So um, th this person's in response w w was a response to the idea that it's been proven untrue that Hood was on laudanum. Mm -hmm. And this person said, No, it has not been proven untrue. It was proven he did not leave Dr. Darby's care addicted, yet laudanum was readily available to him after returning to duty. Trying to ride one-legged strapped to the saddle had to be excruciating. I suspect he started using it again, even though there is no real proof either way. <laughs> right, well, right off the bat, that's someone who just wants it to be true. They, they have the idea in their head that it had to be, I suspect, so thus it's true. And that person's opinion will likely never change because they're not open to any new ideas. Yeah, I, I like that one because it sums up so clearly, I want it to be true, so it right. it must be true. Yeah. And, I, and I would suspect that this person um, has what we've talked about internally, has a confirmation bias. He just doesn't like Hood. And he doesn't like Hood because of what happened at Franklin. And I think those things are actually intertwined with one another. I found that although Hood is somewhat unique because of his injuries, there's a bias against certain characters from the war. I mean, there's a bias I've heard against Braxton Bragg. There's a bias against William Sherman. I mean, for different reasons, but those biases are very entrenched. 
then you look at someone like Robert E. Lee and he's virtually untouchable. So, so you're saying this bias is for certain individuals as well, like in the positive. Yeah. yeah. For, well, I would say Lee is the, although Lee's uh, reputation has been tarnished a little bit recently, he's probably the only one who has not really roundly been attacked. I mean, even Grant is probably the greatest soldier of the war and there are people who still believe he was a drunk, even though there's no evidence that he was anything remotely close to being a drunk. Getting drunk doesn't mean you are a drunk. Um, you may be at that moment, but it doesn't mean you're an alcoholic. And so with Hood, I even had someone whose name I won't mention say to me, off the record, do you think that Hood may have taken laudanum? I said, well, I guess maybe he did, but there's no evidence that he did. So you could ask questions about people in all sorts of ways. Well, do you think they did this? Do you think they did that? Well, I, anything's possible, but we in history, we have to deal with facts. Um, you know, if you want to write fiction, then go ahead and write or read that. But this isn't fiction. What about the, so, so the drug thing aside, one of the other common comments about Hood is that he was lovesick. And that this, <laughs> yeah, this played somehow, like he was a, like a lovesick little puppy who uh, had no business taking back control of the so army. You know who the source for that is? Wiley uh, Sword, right? Well, Wiley Sword, but, and, but Wiley was using someone's diary. Mary Chestnut. Mary Chestnut, yeah. Mary Chestnut is like the Forrest Gump of the Confederacy. <laughs> She's literally everywhere something fun or interesting is happening. She's the only source for it. And she's a source because she ran in those kind of circles. And she knew Hood, although interesting, Hood's uh, social circles were in Richmond. The Chestnuts lived in South Carolina. So their interactions were very limited. Um, and she knew Sally Preston, who was Hood's girlfriend for i guess a couple of years but i don't think their relationship was anything other than you know what a typical relationship was um he courted her she was somewhat interested and in the end when the war was over as i wrote in my book he went to see her one last time and she was as non-committal as she always was and he turned around and walked away and he never he never, i don't think he ever looked back i i again i can't prove this but if, if Hood was thinking about Sally Preston on November 29th or November 30th, 1864, then he should not have been in command. And I don't believe he was. And furthermore, there's no evidence that he was. It, it falls into the uh, mentally unfit, on drugs, lovesick. I think we could boil it down to Hood should not have been an army commander. And I've been pretty open about that. But in 1864, there weren't a lot of other choices. So you agree that Hood maybe wasn't in an ideal world, the pick to lead the Army of Tennessee. Hood never would have been in command of an army had good ones been killed and bad ones already failed. I think I described him in my book as the best of a bad lot. They're just... And sorry, Forrest and Claiburn are in no... that that. I, am I, yeah, is yeah, that a, that, lead, that is that a leading That's another Luke's comment. Comment, yeah, that we are actually yeah. going to bring up right now. So another person said this. Nonsense. <laughs> General Claiborne should have been given command after General Johnson's death at Shiloh. Between, I think he's supposed to say Johnson. Yeah, I was like, I was reading that. I was like, that oh, doesn't no. make any sense. I'm not sure what they're referring to. He's re he's got the wrong Johnston. Johnston yeah. died at Shiloh. He's referring to Johnston. Yeah, Albert Sidney Johnston. Yeah, so okay. here's a classic case of we're going to say Hood shouldn't do it, but we can't get the facts straight in right. the argument that we're making. But then the next, the next sentence is It's even better. Um, between Generals Claiborne and Forrest, we could have won the Western campaign. Right. It says J JMO. So just my opinion. Yeah, just right. my opinion. <laughs> well, here's just my opinion. So Nathan Bedford Forrest couldn't, should never have been in command of anything. Because A, he wasn't a West Pointer. And B, he wasn't, 
he was a cavalry commander and a raider, really. So you might as well have put Jeb Stuart in command of Lee's army had something happened to Lee. It's just, you know, it's to me, that's just nonsensical. Claiborne, um, although I would argue one of the best field commanders that, that ever served the Confederacy, in the summer of 1864, he was a division commander. He had never even commanded a corps. In fact, Claiborne never did command a corps except once, temporarily at Jonesboro, and that was a big epic failure. Um, he didn't do a good job at all. And when William Hardee, who was a corps commander, was asked who would he suggest be promoted to fill the position that Hood's uh, ascension to command had created, because see, Hood was a corps commander. So when Hood moved up, there was this circular that went around, and Hardy was asked, and Hardy was Claiborne's best friend. Claiborne had been a best man at Hardy's wedding. And you know who Hardy said should take the position? He didn't say Claiborne. He said Frank Cheatham, who ends up being the corps commander. Now, why does Hardy say that? I don't know. Maybe he was trying to protect Claiborne, or, gasp, he didn't think Claiborne should be corps commander. Maybe that's exactly what it is, but, but you know, this is, this is what we deal with in history. One of the other allegations against Hood is that he was just brutal to his men and he, he like kind of wantonly allowed their destruction when he didn't have any reason to. One other comment we had was, I've read and I've heard others say that he was horribly brutal to the people under his command and that he had absolutely zero compassion for the conditions his soldiers endured. Thus, it is my understanding that his soldiers hated him. That is probably the most egregious opinion about Hood, which is that he, um, his men hated him, he, he mistreated them. In fact, I, someone once said that he, he ordered the attack at Franklin as some sort of punishment. You know, he just purposely threw them in, particularly Claiborne's division. Well... That's just not true. I mean, Claiborne's division ends up where it does at Franklin because that was the order of battle. Um, it just was, you know, when you've got one division after another stacked up, that's just where Claiborne ended up. In, in, in hindsight, if I were ordering the attack, that's where I would want Claiborne. He led probably, he's the best commander on the field and had some of the best troops. Hood was wildly respected and, in fact, beloved by his Texans, who he had served with, had led in the East, and, and actually led them at Chickamauga, you know, because um, Hood gets sent west with Longstreet in the fall of 63, and so that's where he's wounded. You know, was he was he as beloved as a corps commander and as an army commander? No. But did they hate him? No. Did a few guys hate him? Yeah, probably. Sam Foster and Granbury's brigade wrote some pretty scathing things about the wails of the orphans and the widows will haunt Hood forever or something like that. And, you know, Foster... Foster was was at Franklin. He saw the, the chaos and the and the loss, and so I can understand why he felt that way. But the, but the men did not feel that way um, as a whole. In fact, I would argue that in some ways the men were sort of ambivalent about Hood. Interesting. I think that Hood's per, how Hood was viewed is often is often juxtaposed against how the army felt about Joseph Johnston, which really makes me chuckle because. People talk about how much the men loved Joseph Johnston. Well, the men loved George McClellan, too. And they were crying when he left because they probably realized they were going to have to fight. And when Johnston was relieved and Hood came into command, these guys knew that things were going to be different. So I, I just think it's not, it's just not a fair analysis. And, and Hood as a person, the best perspective 
um, through which to view Hood as a human being is post-war. His work, his family life, his involvement in charities, like raising money for widows and amputees, shows tells you something about who he really was. So I, I just think that's unfair. If you could sum up in just a sentence or two what you think Hood's appropriate legacy should be, could you do that? I think John Bell Hood is one of a, of a handful of men who ascended to high level of command, who gave everything, they gave and did everything they could for, for the cause. They believed in this idea of Southern independence. Um, he failed. You know, ultimately, every single Confederate officer failed, including Robert E. Lee. They all lost. Hood you know, gave an arm and a leg, if you will. And and after the war, he he signed his amnesty um, request. And um, I don't think Hood really did look back other than, you know, he seemed to be prompted to respond after Johnston wrote his book, but that's quite a few sentences. I think he, he was like a lot of men. He was brave, he believed in it, and he did what he could. And when the war was over, he accepted its fate. That's probably why I feel that his place in history should be corrected because he was among these men who didn't look back. The South had lost and it was time to move on. Well, do you have any other questions, Sarah? No. Anything else you'd like to add? No, we should do it again sometime. We should. Yeah. I mean, Hood's, Hood, Hood's, uh, Hood's story is central to Franklin's story. Hood's, um, I think how Hood was viewed was why Franklin was so denigrated and virtually lost because the story was one that didn't really interest people. It never should have happened. It was this big sort of almost like mass murder inflicted by this crazy person. Well, who cares about that? Well, as we saw, not a lot of people did. And I think that getting Hood just properly balanced, where it's not a defense of him, but it's not an attack on him. He's just a player. He's probably the major player here. Gets people to understand that there was high drama. Uh, in Middle Tennessee in 1864. I, yeah, I hadn't thought about that. If Hood is just the outright villain, then the Battle of Franklin story is just a tragedy inflicted on them by this brutal man. But if you take that away and just realize these are the actions of normal people making the best decision they can, given the situation they're in, then it becomes much more, I mean, I, realistic, but relatable, I think. Then you just realize this could be anybody at any time. I think that's exactly what happened. I think that... Hood believed, no, no doubt, that Hood believed this was his last chance to destroy uh, John Schofield's army. That's why he attacked. That is the only reason that he attacked. It wasn't punishment. It wasn't recklessness. It wasn't, you know, this rage. Um, he believed this was his last chance. Those who condemn Hood have always been the people who never knew him. And that's why I think that history tells us something else. When you walked or rode in the footsteps of these men, you'd be far less inclined to lob these sort of senseless accusations. His soldiers may not have loved him, but they, um, they didn't hate him, and they knew they'd all been in this together, even those who survived Franklin, for the most part. They understood what, what was at stake. and So that's why I think it's important that we, we do what we're doing today, which is to save as much of the battlefield as we can and tell people what really happened here, because they were real people. They were real characters on both sides, trying to do what was, what they thought was right. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed Eric's perspective on Hood. 
And if you would like to support this show, there's plenty of things that you can do. If you want to keep up with what we're doing, follow us on social media. Facebook, you can find Carter House and Carnton. Instagram, you can find us on BOFT1864. If you enjoy this content that we're putting out and would like to reach out to Sarah or I about topics that we should cover in the future, please send us an email just at podcast at boft.org. And the best way that you can support this show is by purchasing one of our t-shirts. They're very cool. They look fun. And they're very comfortable. Just head to store.boft.org and you can find them under apparel. As always, support your local history. Please come out for a tour of Carter House or Carnton. You might have one of us as your tour guide. Yeah. Thank you so much for listening.